Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. This is your host, Francesco, and I welcome you back to another fantastic episode. Uh, we're still in the US <laughs> in these episodes. Uh, and we interview Michael Fraser, that is currently the CIO and Chief Architect, uh, also co-founder of Refractor, uh, that is a DevSecOps software startups. But uh, I want to explore with Michael about his past because he goes back from Air Force veteran and effectively fixing F-45 and into cybersecurity and how that that happened. And then we explore about, uh, of course, the impact on the pandemic in the world, especially in the startup world with Security Phoenix. We we haven't been affected much because fundamentally we were born (laughs) uh, through and through as uh, effectively a COVID company. But then we, we explore the effect of automation in security and generally speaking tech, the vulnerability management, uh, the citizen developer that effectively is uh, an initiative from uh, Gardner to sponsor effectively and to push people and everybody in the organization to code and what are the consequences effectively for uh, security people if everybody starts to code but without the security background. As security professional, we are already fighting a battle to effectively make everybody a little bit more secure and a little bit more security aware. And then citizen code and citizen developer comes <laughs> and uh, let's say it makes our life a little bit more complicated, but we're gonna win even this battle. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's again, a little bit different because we explore how a vet goes into a little bit in cybersecurity and then as an entrepreneurial life, what it is. So this is your host, Francesco. I hope you enjoy. Stay safe. Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we have the absolute honor to have a friend from the future or from the past, depending on whether you see each one in the timeline. <laughs> Michael Fraser uh, is the, let me correct me, CEO of Refractor? Yep, CEO of Refactor. Yep, Fantastic. Exactly. CEO of Refractor joining us from Seattle in the very bright and early morning where here in London we had a bright and dark <laughs> <laughs> evening. And we promise we, we are recording this on a very particular timeline where the president is in the making, so we're not going to make any reference or we might make predictions. <laughs> right, so- yeah. But let's hear from Mike. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. It's been it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on the show. But maybe you can give our audience a little bit of background on, of how did you end up being in, in cybersecurity? How did you start Refractor? And what brought you to, to effectively bring it up to life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a fascination with computers since a very young age. And when I uh, became an adult and decided I wanted to join the military, I 
joined the Air Force and I wanted, yeah, initially I, I worked on weapon systems on F-15 uh, fighter jets, which was amazing. And my goal from there was to, uh, I wanted to work in something related to cybersecurity. And so I actually transitioned into becoming a cybersecurity engineer uh, when I left active duty and went into the Air National Guard, uh, which was which was great. And from there, I, you know, I had a bug to be and I had the entrepreneurial, you know, bug from a very young age. When I was 19, wow. I started my first uh, uh, venture in technology, a computer repair shop when that was still a cool thing to do in the early 2000s. And uh, I was also in active duty at the time. So I was able to set up my schedule where I could work the uh, mid shift and then I would I would leave from work go straight to the store, work in there, and then uh, go home and sleep and start the whole thing over again. But I also learned at 19 that you also don't have a ton of, you know, you have a lot of energy and you think you're going to conquer the world. And so you learn a lot of lessons quickly. And so I went from retail computer store to, to a, uh, you know, more of a mobile IT company. Then I got into uh, more kind of cloud, cloud services and cybersecurity consulting. Uh, had a, a uh, we had a company doing hyperconverged infrastructure before that was even a thing or a term back about 10 years ago. And then I was also very heavy into the VDI space. Uh, so doing a lot of stuff with secure virtual desktops, both on-premise and in the public cloud and kind of evolved to what I'm doing now with Refactor, uh, which also I, my background. So I came from the cybersecurity side and I was very fascinated to get into software engineering. So I actually went back to school during getting refactor off the ground to get my bachelor's and master's in computer science. And uh, the goal was to use my GI Bill. That was one of my, uh, you know, military veteran benefits uh, before it expired. But it was also because I really wanted to, you know, learn computer science and come from the other direction. So I'm kind of a an anomaly when it comes to that. But the entire time, my goal was to continue to figure out what could be something that could benefit the overall cybersecurity industry. And also, you know, I worked a couple of different timelines as well uh, in the in the near past around, uh, I, I did a time over at Optiv uh, and another, you know, MSSP. And my goal mm -hmm. was to to figure out, you know, what, what made sense when I was with, the, you know, customers and uh, also, you know, all of my background on the cybersecurity side as well. And my my serial entrepreneur background is like, you know, constantly thinking about where the industry is going and uh, also how a lot of my you know colleagues and other folks that I work with out there were trying to get into cloud security and becoming cloud security architects and being able to become, you know, get into this new thing called DevSecOps and it was, you know, really, you know, the root of it all was, you know, there's a lot of DevOps tools that are being used out there and folks like myself could get out there and use them. But it was like, how do you get this out into a broader hand of, of cybersecurity practitioners who don't necessarily aren't coders or developers, but they want to be able to upskill themselves and they really want to get into this whole modern push where everything becomes software defined, or as I call it, IT is code. And so that was kind of the genesis of the idea of Refactor was, you know, how can you get cybersecurity practitioners working hand in hand with developers and DevOps engineers in a format that they themselves can be able to utilize and start upskilling, but also be able to work and be more in a friendly type of scenario 
versus what a lot of the security automation products out there, even you know, point solutions and cloud security, they're very limited and very opinionated on what they provide to the cybersecurity practitioner. And everybody, you know, is like, hey, we want to be able to customize our own approach. We want something that's more agile. We want something that supports a lot of these tools that even the vendors are creating content in, like Terraform and Ansible and cloud native templates. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was really kind of the push for us to to not just build refactor, but realize like there was a huge void in our industry that really needed to be filled. And there's just a lot of cybersecurity practitioners that really want to be able to, you know, get into this modernization or as everybody likes to call it, digital transformation. But the question is how, right? Like, how do you even get in on it without having to go back to school, without having to get a computer science degree, without having to spend years of your life to try to, you know, even get yourself up to a fundamental level of, you know, computer science fundamentals. Like that's the the key, like, how do you do that? So that's why we started Refactor. So what what, what really what did drive you in, in getting into cyber, not in traditional engineering? Or uh, how did you transition from building weapon to cybersecurity or to IT, if you want? So the, the different fields, well, they are and they aren't, if you want, different fields. But what was the main driver? What was the passion? What was the key stories where you realized, I need to I need to do this because this is cool and exciting. Yeah. So when I was working on aircraft armament systems, weapon systems, and F-15s, I realized I, I got really good at it really quickly and I get bored of things quickly. And so it was one of those aha moments where I was like, you know, I kind of want to get into something more on the the IT side of the house. I like, you know, the operation side and, and cybersecurity. And so that was kind of the catalyst for me. And also the fact that I was going into the Air National Guard. So my goal, so you go from an active duty to the guard, you end up doing like one week in a month and two weeks a year. And so it was able to give me back a bunch of time that wasn't focused on active duty. So I could also do my entrepreneurial thing. So it really helped catalyst me from that standpoint. And from the cybersecurity standpoint, it was like like in, in the DOD and in the Air Force, like everything cybersecurity touches everything, right? Like there's not one thing that you do that doesn't have, you know, all kinds of levels of, of protection and having to think about the the impact of, you know, trying to protect everything against, you know, bad actors and, uh, you know, other uh, nations and so on. So, you know, it was, it was, fa- that was fascinating to me. And the other piece was just like, there's one of those, those areas that has so much to learn, like you'll never learn everything ever. And there's always net new stuff coming out. And so I had an affinity for it for that reason, too, because, as I said earlier, I get bored with things really quickly. So I wanted something I could constantly be learning, constantly be evolving on. And the byproduct of that was, you know, the cloud started becoming a thing, you know, back when I transitioned from active duty to uh, the Air National Guard. So I hopped on the cloud bandwagon and was one of the first to to market there with uh, some stuff I was doing for, you know, private clouds for on-premise deployments. and Again, everything had a, a cybersecurity kind of overlay to it. So by default, it was I was able to hone in on 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 my my focus there, and then just been really focused on you know where is the market evolved and kind mm-hmm. of morphed to, and where are their pain points that I could see myself firsthand? Because I feel like if you're you know in the trenches and doing work, uh, you know, uh, in, in the front lines with end users you can really figure out what is missing out there and try to innovate around bringing new ideas that become reality. 
And that's been something I've been working on for a long, long time. So it's not, you realize like it takes a long time to, 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 you know, you can come up with an idea, but it takes a while to be able to fine tune that idea it. And, to, and to execute it. And then to, to realize that you may need to also morph and change it and pivot on your ideas too. And so making changes in your process on, on things and, and not holding on uh, to something that you may have thought was a good idea initially and, and realizing that you have to make the change to it in order for it to be something that the industry is ready for. And I'll say the other thing that, that you realize too is everything is dependent upon market timing. So you may have the best idea in the world and you may even be able to execute, but the market may not be ready for it. Mm -hmm. So you really have to be- You don't want to be the first. You don't want to no. be the second. You want to be the third <laughs> that actually execute on the back of good ideas. Or that's true. Or if you are the first, you want to make sure that you're clearly blazing a trail that is timing the market perfectly. So it's not, not necessarily a problem with being first. It's a problem with being first and you being like five years too early to the market because <laughs> then it's like, well, that's cool, but nobody's going to buy it. So then I have to wait this out to see when the market adapts to it. And the market may change direction, go some other, you know, other path. So you really have to be cognizant that, you know, again, it, it, things change outside of your control. And, uh, you know, other things happen like our current, you know, pandemic, which has been kind of a catalyst for what we're doing at Refactor. But at the and same time, innovation. We're going to exactly, see a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people that uh, have a lot of spare time that now are thinking, thinking like crazy. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to see a tons of new innovation coming out of COVID. And that's my positive uh, outlook on COVID. <laughs> yeah, I 100% I, I agree with that. And I also think it's one of those times that you're able to take strategy and have to turn it into reality because you have no choice mm -hmm. in when we're forced to make changes because of situations outside of our control that ends up accelerating things that we currently have. And then to your point, starts the, the ability to have net new ideas that come out that people are like, well, I wasn't even thinking that this should be this way. Maybe this is actually something that's viable and needed in our industry. So I, I think, you know, every so often we need that major push. So, you know, I would say there's a there's a, a silver lining on what's going on now, not to not to you know downplay you know the severity of what's happening, but at the same time, it is allowing for us to think about things differently yeah. and start making changes that we really needed to do you know years ago, but now it's all at the forefront. So everybody's scrambling to you know to, to push forward. And it's trial by fire. Uh, I, I see this period for especially people and innovators and people that wanna. Uh, really make it is the, the the real test of the execution because it's executing in extreme condition and is really making happen no matter what. And all the startup that's gonna come through this hurdle and through this uh, effectively walk in the fire will be so strong afterwards because everything will be so much easier afterwards. Yeah, it's like the dot com bubble. Yeah, fundamentally all over again with a crisis and and the and the company that actually made it like Netflix uh, or I don't know, Yahoo or, or the others that actually make it, made it in that outcome bubble actually survived and thrived. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a good point. And I, I think the other piece that everybody's looking at too around that is you know, every time we have, you know, a major event out there like this, everybody looks towards key areas and one of them being automation. And mm -hmm. so, 
uh, everybody realizes they have to do more with what they currently have or less sometimes. And and the other piece that we really that I see out there right now, and you probably see this number constantly going up, right? Like we have this uh, a talent shortage of three million, three point five, four million, right? And it's like, well, okay, that that's fine, but we have to really think about how do we actually solve for that because it's not like we're going to just you know one day you know wake up and there's going to be you know three and a half million, million of security architects yeah, <laughs> that are just out there <laughs> waiting for work so we have to think about you know how how can we leverage you know automation and essentially machines to help augment our current talent out there and it's the same issue on you know the, well, uh, the developer side as well I'll, where... I'll tell you what the uk government came out during pandemic with a with a, an amazing campaign to actually try to convert people in art, specifically ballerinas, into cybersecurity. And they got so much hate for it. <laughs> Talking about choosing the wrong time and the wrong message. They weren't wrong. I mean, they were saying something right, but they can they kind of hit a, a very nerve of people that were actually suffering through the pandemic. But is is I think there is a silver lining in there where you can reinvent yourself during this pandemic. You can push yourself to the limit because you're absolutely right, Michael. We're not going to have 1.2 million or 3 million of, of security professional, depending how broad you want to expand the field from Pope or Red Team or other teams. We're not going to have them magically. And I, I think that the way you're going is absolutely right. Automation, trying to remove the boring stuff, because effectively a lot of the things that in cybersecurity we face is repeatable, automatable tasks in application security, cloud security, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, it's, it's one of those areas where what you're in the other, so to, to, to hone in on that. So the other piece is we have this modernization going, right? Where if you're going to the public cloud, everything becomes infrastructure as code, right? And then with that also comes along, you know, I may want to be able to, you know, do things programmatically against APIs. I want to be able to do configuration as code, security as code, policy as code, fill in the blank, right? And if it all becomes code, then we also have to think about how the change is happening and what we have to be doing as cybersecurity practitioners to be able to not just upskill, but really kind of redefine how we're able to do our job on a day-to-day -day basis. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of thought process out there. Like if something becomes software defined, I should be able to put it into an agile process like software development has been doing with you know CI CD or continuous integration continuous delivery around DevOps and now we have this thought around okay we want to add security to DevOps and so now we have DevSecOps that's great but with DevSecOps to your point the goal is to be able to have cybersecurity to have a seat at the table so that they can work hand in hand uh, with the developers and DevOps and then you to your point about like you know AppSec or cloud security or there's all these use cases that you want to start filling in to this process so that that you can increase the overall agility of your organization and security no longer needs to be this siloed thing separate from you know development and operations it should be able to be part of the overall process but a part of it is you know no you know coming from the ops and the cybersecurity side you know everybody starts there you know you live in UIs and GUIs and wizards everything is visually based right and then you start, maybe you're doing a little bit of, of uh, coding or building some scripts or whatever it may be, uh, living on the command line. But it's like, now you have to make that jump from there, right? As a, you know, a network engineer or a cybersecurity engineer to this 
the future state where everybody's modernizing, where it's like everything becomes software defined. Mm -hmm. How do how am I a part of that process? And also, how do you get the cloud security architects, the DevSecOps engineers, your you know traditional uh, you know cybersecurity engineers, your DevOps engineers, all working together in a way that they can be able to increase the agility? Or you probably also hear all the time in cybersecurity too the word continuous, right? Around like, yeah. uh, I want to have a, a continuous process to be able to update my cybersecurity posture, whether that's in, like on the DOD side with continuous ATO authority to operate, or it's on the commercial side where, you know, everybody's looking at, you know, how how can I increase the agility to get my, you know, updates to, you know, vul- uh, remediation for vulnerabilities out quicker, or how can I incorporate scanning into my process so that it's just built in as opposed to being something that's manually done after a handoff happens from developers to cybersecurity. So there's this void out there that we're trying to fill, but also at the same time, this acceleration to this modern uh, way of doing things in the umbrella of the IT organization of, you know, including development security and operations. And so security sits right in the middle of the intersect between them and really has to be a part of that process. And so that I see, you know, our industry starting to make that change that direction, but really needing to have ways to be able to get there, which is critical. And it's not just, and part of it's the upskilling part, but also part of it's like, you got to have ways to be able to cater to the broader spectrum of technical talent to include those who know how to code and those who don't, because they're always going to have to work together, right? And so that's the that's the key is how how do we how do we change our approach and get cybersecurity in to be able to leverage you know DevOps principles and processes, but also be able to just increase their own agility uh, and at you know in, inside of their organization. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor, and then we return back. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. I agree. And I think you touched on two really critical points, but just to hold on that that idea, I think we need to bring also the business and the decision maker in in a lot, you touch on on vulnerability management and application security, and I've, I've been been doing uh, a number of massive application security transformation, and that's where I learned that fundamentally one of the key challenges is not the automation as such, but is as soon as you start scanning things, as soon as you start discovering vulnerability, there are so many and they are so overwhelming that you can't just simply say, "Well, we're going to just stop the build," and what about all the legacy? You need to bring mm-hmm. in the whole management and. Fundamentally, application security coding is complex. We can mm-hmm. try to simplify in any way, shape, or form, but these are complicated things. To otherwise, everybody will be good at it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> it was simple, and I think we need to, uh, as cybersecurity, we need to get into it 
but we also don't need to shoot ourselves in the foot saying that everybody needs to be a coder because all of a sudden the skill shortage becomes even more skill shortage because <laughs> now you have cybersecurity people and a niche that is effectively cybersecurity people that can actually code. And as you rightfully said, a lot of people come from GRC, uh, risk and compliance, infrastructure network, and coding. Yeah, we they are used to command line, but maybe they're not that much used about writing script and other stuff. So how what's your view on that? Uh, business versus coding versus simplifying or not simplifying? How do you see that problem? Yeah, so it's 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 one of those, you know, so, you, so there's a concept out there right now where there's this thing called a citizen developer. And that developer is somebody who uses, you know, more on the low code side of things. But really, the problem that I see with a lot of the, the process there is that low code will abstract away. So you know, people want to make their opinions when they create things. A lot of times those opinions have to meet the business requirements of an organization. And so you have to look at, you know, is this system I'm trying to use or this this tool, maybe it's a low code platform, does it give me the power to be able to still make my own opinions? Or is it going to make all these opinions for me that may or may not work for me? And so it comes down to like, you have to start thinking about things where, you know, you have to have enough power in an enterprise, in any any sort of tool that you pick to be able to provide what you need to be able to do, uh, I kind of call it the 80-20 rule, right? Like you wanna you wanna create repeatability of you know 80% of the building blocks, the ba baselines are built out for you, but then everything else is gonna be what you turn mm -hmm. that you know that you customize to be able to make it your own, whether that's for your department, whether that's for an end customer, whatever the use case. And so you really have to think about. You brought this up earlier, which is repeatability that can map to the business outcomes that an organization is looking to achieve by leveraging technology and having those two be hand in hand so that there's synergies so that the the technical you know the technical teams aren't look at just as cost centers and and vice versa everybody's not just looking at like oh well all of our business drivers are 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 solely for revenue generation but we don't think about the impact of what that means on the technical side and those two groups have to be working together. And I think that if we can, you know, if we can be able to map business outcomes to what we're trying to do from a technical perspective, then you're going to be able to then look at what you need to solve that. And that's when you can go out there and look and say, you know, back to my comment about a citizen developer, it's like, can you have other folks in your organization that can use a particular tool or platform that can that can be a part of the process as opposed to them being removed and your technical teams like DevOps or cloud or cybersecurity teams are the bottleneck and can you get more people across team collaborating to be able to be able to have you know be able to wherever they're at from a technical spectrum uh, of of talent you know the technical talent be able to be a part of that now it may never get all the way over to like you know, a, a, a typical end user is going to be a part of that process. But if you can at least get more of closer. the technical folks, yeah, closer, as you hear this other term out there, shift left, right? Where it's like, hey, I want cybersecurity to be able to get closer to the beginning of the, the, the development process. But I kind of look at it like everything should be agile. Every process should map to what you're talking about there where whether it's I'm starting a network automation process and I'm just running 
updates against configurations against physical hardware, or I'm actually doing more of a, hey, I'm releasing code, I'm running a DAS, a SAS, uh, you know, some, some container scanning against it in a more cloud native, everything should follow an agile you know, process. And it shouldn't just be for software delivery. It should be for everything your organization is doing because at the root of what every organization is talking about when they're talking about digital transformation is really to increase the agility of their organization so they can get to outcomes quicker, whatever it is, whether it's getting their product out there to market quicker, whether it's being able to, to be able to remediate a vulnerability, it should be able to follow the same process to be able to have not only this concept of continuous, but also to be able to increase the agility of the organization so you can get to the end result or the outcomes quicker on whatever your use case is. That's why I continue to bang. I completely agree with you, Michael. And that's why I continue to bang the drum that vulnerability management and uh, dealing with security, it shouldn't be seen as dealing with security, but this should be seen as it's just a bug. It's just a normal <laughs> process. It should be completely involved, uh, regardless if it's code, infrastructure, patching, uh, remediation of an endpoint or remediation of code, they should be seen as ticket in Jira and vulnerability and try not to you know, create more technical debt. And on the subject of actually technical debt, I am a little bit terrified by citizen who code because I, I love it from an idea perspective, but then I'm terrified of some prototype that then become all of a sudden a production device <laughs> cobbled up together in a week. So I have this concept that I have where there's two different types of users. There's the producers, which are the ones that create the content. They know how to, some of them are, you know, developers slash coders. Some of them are, you know, they know how to at least build scripts and live in CI, but they still create content. Or, yeah, create the content. And then the consumers. So to me, that's more of the citizen developer where you have a controlled process that you provide to them where Something that's low code makes a lot more sense on the front end because you want to be able to abstract away and only give them the power they need and to be able to meet them where they need to be at, to your point, being visual, but also being able to get them to be a part of the process, but in a controlled way where you're not giving them the keys to the kingdom. You're saying, hey, look, here are five different use cases of five different things that you can do. And you can tweak these things to make them your own, but I'm not going to give you everything. I'm only going to give you a small subset of what you need. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this concept too about how you can share any sort of automation that you create to a broader group of people without it being, you know, the, hey, here is, here's some stuff I built in a Git repo, right? And it's like, well, the very eventually is I need to know Git. <laughs> so it's, and then, and then you add to that, like, I need tools and I need to know how this works against all these external systems. Is it cloud? Is it on-premise? And you brought up a point earlier, which is all this stuff adds additional complexity to it, Correct. right? So it becomes one of those, you know, the approach where you have to think about it holistically and you have to think about from a collaborative standpoint, also trying to make sure that you give users what they need to be able to do their job without giving them too much that it's going to cause them issues to getting overwhelmed, but then also complexity. the complexity piece, but also the ability to upskill themselves too. Because if they can start using the same platform or tools that their, their developer counterparts are using, a lot of people are looking at now, okay, I'm, I'm a user of this. What could I learn to help upskill myself? Because longer term, 
you're going to have to learn how some of these tools work. You're going to have to learn how the public cloud works. You're going to have to learn about all these as a code type of things. And to your point, there are domains in cybersecurity that are traditionally more, they're not even overall super technical, right? And so you're trying to figure out ways to be able to bridge that gap so that they could be a part of the process too. Because at the end of the day, the vision that we have and that I have for the industry is that we can all be a part of the same sort of, again, agile process. But really, it's like I can have sequences of, of tasks that I can do, and then I can share those with other teams or other colleagues of mine. And we can all be working together, but in a controlled way, because that's the, the critical thing is the collaboration piece. But it's very different right now how you know cybersecurity practitioners collaborate on, say, a uh, a SOAR platform versus cybersecurity and say a CI/CD platform. Mm-hmm. And there has to be kind of a an intermediary approach. Yeah, middle ground where you can cater to both those audiences and get everybody involved. And then also enrolling other people longer term in the organization. Because once people realize, wait a minute, you're doing this process, I went in on it. And it's very, you know, it's no different. If you're than, simplifying your life, if you yeah. can bypass the whole uh, gatekeeping things of cybersecurity, and if you can do it yourself up to a point, and why not? Because it's going to accelerate your project. It's going to remove that uh, rubber stamp approval that it's a manual process. And if you can do 90% of it, cybersecurity will be, well, yeah, you follow guardrail. We're happy with it. Like rubber stamp, we don't want to block you. Exactly. And if you have gates that you need in place or some sort of you know human intervention or whatever else in the process, I mean, that happens in software delivery too, in traditional CI, CD, where it's like, I don't want to release this to prod. I want to be able to have a process where a human still has the final okay and then releases its production. You can think about that same approach. You can apply that to cybersecurity. You have steps in the process and then you determine who also has control at various steps. And then you are able to have lines of demarcation between each so that if there's a handoff or there's a process that you need to be able to follow, you want to be able to have that in place, but you should be able to follow it just like developers have been doing in more of CI, CD pipelines uh, for the last 10 right. years when it comes to adding, you know, agile infrastructure to DevOps, right? Or for DevOps to software delivery, I should say. <laughs> but maybe another thing, another point that I wanted to touch on uh, was on the uh, citizen code or effectively the low code, no code, uh, the whole mentality. And right now we, we're seeing a shift in the mentality of people, we have trained them in security basic, if you want, and MFA, certain things are becoming the demand, they're demanding it, the user, the end user are demanding it, and it's becoming almost natural. So why can't we push towards the last mile and say, everybody that builds application will need to think about this garden because it's the norm. I think for certain things like password authentication, certain things we the message got there. People realize now that they need to protect their password, that it needs to be a length. Yes, we'll still have the older generation that have still some misconception and the younger generation that don't care. But the message is getting out there, I think. And what I'm terrified and where I want to go is if we push the low code, no code, then we push also guardrail, all that knowledge that you can you have the power of the kingdom if you want to build your application, but you need to do it following this gathering. You need to build the application with this in mind. Yeah, and it's not a, a low-code approach uh, is not a silver bullet, right? So yeah. we have to think about 
like why we're trying to do that. And a lot of it's around just uh, increasing the speed to getting to the, to the outcome, right? Like I have this application I want to create, or I have this solution I want to create. And again, it comes down to my, my thought on if it's software defined and you can put it into a process, then you also want to create repeatability in your process. So to your point, if I have particular security controls that I need to enforce, right? Like it's, I have to have MFA enabled. I have to have password complexity. I have to have um, you know, particular, you know, scanning, if I'm doing infrastructure, whatever it may be, radiation, you know, being able to even like orchestrate blocking users, other things, like all of this is all about the user and trying to make it self-service too. So a good, a, a portion of what low code is about is trying to make things that are more, you can get into the hands of somebody who could be able to use it that traditionally wouldn't be able to use it because they don't know the underlying technologies but you have to be very careful about that because it needs to be in a format where it's kind of equated to like the easy button where they come in, they can, you know, fill in a few things, they can push the button and it goes and does something for them. But you don't want to expose too much either because your goal there is to make it self-service for them. Yeah. And simple. And then on the other side of it, you want to still have, again, because of the complexity, the support of what the people that are creating any of the, the, the stuff that they're using um, because of the fact that if it's if it's solely low code, it's you can talk to anybody that's ever used a low code platform. It's great out of the gate, but as soon as you wanna do anything complicated with it, it becomes a, a conundrum because it's like, well, when do I make the decision to move this to something that can support the complexity it's and the scale and everything else I need. It's, yeah. It's yeah. people getting comfortable with prototyping and throwing away a prototype that you shouldn't get too attached. And, and you know it better than, than I do with, with startup. You get an initial project, then you, you start talking to a few customers and they say, well, we want this in red and we want this in this shape. And you say, well, my MVP goes out of the way <laughs> and I rebuild it from scratch. And it's, it's not getting attached. An MVP is a way to demonstrate, or a prototype even, is a way to demonstrate an idea, and then you start doing it properly uh, from scratch. You might reuse some component yeah. or idea or wireframe or whatever, but it's... it's Well, yeah, and the other thing to think about too is like low-code is no longer just an app, you know, application development process. And so even at Refactor, like our like in order to cater to uh, multiple personas or a, a broader spectrum of technical talent, you have to have something that can cater to the more visual focused uh, users that need to live inside of a UI. But then you also need to have an API and the power of all of the tools that you would expect if you were building something more complicated. So it's it's kind of a balance between both. And so I'm I'm a big proponent of low code, but if it goes hand in hand with your strategy of how you can build things on the front end and what those look like to your point, whether it's you know being able to trigger it from other systems, because really it's about module being modular. So Correct. if I can tie into an existing system, so if it's low code that only works unto itself, that's where I have a problem because then it becomes to your point, something that you could use quickly to prototype. But if you want to go to production with it, if it doesn't have ways to tie into other systems or really allow for other folks that want to create more custom things, even if you're using the 80-20 rule, then you really have to think about why am I using this low-code product? What like what power don't I am I lacking by using it? And 
what value do I get out of using this versus going straight to something that I would use traditionally for this particular use case? And then thinking about how that particular product ties into other systems, because the other thing about anything that you're trying to build, bring on net new, it has to be as non-disruptive to existing processes, because as we talked about the skill shortage out there, it's equally an issue internally in organizations where you know people look at a new tool and they're like, oh, this is cool and shiny, but I need to know what value this provides to me to my current investments and other things I have before I would ever entertain using this as a full-on platform. So you really have to think about the, you know, the level of disruption to the organization, where you can tie into existing investments. It needs to be minimal. Yeah, exactly. And the value that it's providing to get to the outcomes as quickly as possible. Because that's what everybody's looking at today. It's like, what is this going to do for me as quickly as possible with as little time to value as, as required by us so that we can immediately start getting what we need out of this if we're going to start paying for a product. Absolutely, Michael. We are just right on time, but I want to ask before we go to close off. I mean, we've been a little bit negative or positive if you want on the low code. I, I love the conversation, by the way. It's, it's one of my pet peeves and one of the new things I got into. I did a couple of podcasts on, on the subject, so I love the idea. I'm just a little bit terrified by it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, to give our audience, we have a very uh, long tradition of leaving everybody with a very positive message on cybersecurity, on COVID, or whatever whatever you want. Just a stage is yours. Very, very quick message, positive message to close off. Yeah, I would say that, you know, in the midst of everything going on, this is one of the best times to be a cybersecurity practitioner. I would, you know, focusing on the ability to upskill yourself and being able to be a part of this entire modernization of our industry is is exciting. And so my my one nugget of advice is really to focus on things that you can do to upskill yourself so that you can start getting into being a part of the process and having a seat at the table. And if that if that's learning infrastructure as code or configuration or security as code or anything that's either in, uh, you know, in your domain or adjacent to it, because it's just by default, like infrastructure as code, learn new things and learn tools and do not be scared to take up and learning some of that because it's going to be valuable for you for a long, long time. And it's something that I, I recommend everybody does in some capacity. Absolutely. No, I can't agree more. And right now in this specific time, it enables you to take control of your life and have control over something that where in in the in the whole pandemic things and chaos things that we are surrounded. At least you have a grip on your yourself and on your knowledge. That is the only thing at the moment I suggest you can control. <laughs> but exactly. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on board. And maybe for uh, our listener, where uh, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. It's, uh, my handle is IT is code. And I'm also on LinkedIn. You can look me up under IT is code as well. Uh, and then you can look up a refactor at -E, refactor.it. Um, and you can find me on there as well. Thank you so much for, for the information. We're going to also put it on, on the podcast notes. But it's been an absolute blast. And for everybody that is out there, thank you for listening and stay safe and upskill yourself. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thanks, Francisco. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Thank you.